So we're, we're talking about that we're going, through the, we're going through the Bible in a year, and we're, now we've entered in the New Testament. And uh, we're, this, today we're talking about how Jesus and when Jesus calls his disciples, and how important that is, Jesus calls his disciples. And uh, there's, some, there's some very interesting stuff. This. As we go through this, one of, the, one of the challenges that I'm facing is that most of the things that we're preaching should be a series. You know, like each sermon is a series of sermons, but, you know, Instead, I'm just going to really give you a lot of information today, like seven sermons in one day. So be ready. Uh, so you hope you know, one of them might be good. There's a, think of the odds. All right. Uh, so Jesus is calling his disciples. Now, John the Baptist preceded Jesus. John the Baptist had a ministry. His ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah. So John began preaching repentance. He was telling the Jews, you need to turn from your sin. And all kinds of people were coming to John and repenting of their sin and being baptized. I didn't talk about baptism, did I? We are going to have a baptism on February the 3rd, speaking of that, and you can, which is not our normal third Sunday of the month because we have some people that do reserve duty and they can't come on the third Sunday of the month. So we've got a baptism that's going to be on a different Sunday to help those people. So we have a baptism on the third. If you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized because just as John preached baptism for repentance, baptism is important. Baptism is a demarcation line. Baptism is saying I'm no longer belong to the enemy. Now I am a child of the son of God. I've drawn a line in the sand. I'm his. It is the Lord baptizing you into his family. So it's important. So John the Baptist was baptizing. He wasn't baptizing the Jews for salvation. He was baptizing them for repentance, to turn from their sin, to be good Jews. It was the beginning of what Jesus was going to accomplish. He, it was, his ministry wasn't the end. He was the forerunner. He was preparing the way. And so the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. What's the Lamb of God going to do? Take away the sins of the world. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So John had disciples, and they're standing around. Jesus shows up and said, this is the Messiah. This is the one that I'm telling you about. And so two of John's disciples, in essence, said, then why are we following you? We should be following him, right? And so they follow him. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Probably went to Capernaum to Jesus's house in Capernaum. One of the two who heard John speak and followed was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We, he, it doesn't tell us who the other person was, but the person who's writing this is John. We believe that the person who wrote this and is the other disciple is John. So he's giving a first-person account. You know, John also writes in this that, that, that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, you know, uh, and he believed that. So, where was that? They followed and, yeah, we yeah, he found first his own brother Simon. So Andrew tells his brother Simon. And said to him, we found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. 
which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee. This is Jesus. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Forney? It doesn't say that. He said Nazareth, but it's kind of the same thing because here's what he's saying. There's no prophecy in the Old Testament related that the Savior, the Messiah, is going to come out of Nazareth. And so he is someone who's looking for the Messiah. They're looking for specific things. The Messiah is from the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, and he should come from Bethlehem. So he made an assumption because Jesus lived in Nazareth or probably Capernaum now, but he was grew up in Nazareth, that he was from Nazareth, but he wasn't. He was from Bethlehem. So, you know, so he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is there any prophet? Is the Messiah supposed to come from Nazareth? And Philip said, well, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Jesus saw Nathanael come to him, and he said, to behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He was a pretty easy convert, wasn't he? His doubts turned around pretty quick. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of men. So Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist. They're the first, they're the first two to follow Christ. Andrew and John. Andrew, we never really hear that much more about Andrew. What does Andrew do? What's the big job Andrew does? Well, he he converts his brother, he calls his brother Peter and says, Hey, you need to come see Jesus. One of the big things that Andrew does is that he introduces Peter to Christ. And Peter is very important in the early church. We don't hear much more from Andrew. It doesn't mean he didn't do a lot of things. It means that we don't have a lot more biblical record of Andrew. So, so Andrew tells his brother Peter, and John tells his brother James, James and John, the sons of thunder, uh, Peter and Andrew, their brothers. Uh, Philip comes probably because Andrew, Jesus says to Philip, follow me, but he's also from the t- same town as Peter and Andrew. And then Philip tells his friend Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is following And here's what I want you to get from this about discipleship. One of the primary tools that God is going to use in the kingdom of God is relationship. Because the kingdom of God is not about a religion. You're not coming into a religious activity. God is inviting you into his family. So it's a relationship. God's inviting you to be his child to be a part of his family. It's a relationship. So since he's inviting us into a relationship, God uses relationship. He'll use your friends and your contacts to bring you into the kingdom of God. How many of you were not raised knowing a lot about Jesus or church, but a friend invited you to something and and that began your journey to Christ? 
All right? Quite a few. You see, God wants to use your relational connections to connect you to friends and family and to Jesus. Statistically, we know this, that we've heard this, that people will come to church if they're invited. There are people who will, people that you're in contact with, and you don't think they will, you've already pre-qualified them. You look at them and say, they ain't, I'd ask them, but they're not coming to church. But here's, here's what you don't know. Underneath the exterior of a lot of people, they're like everybody else. They're looking for life. They're looking for hope. They're looking for answers. They're looking for Jesus. They don't know they're looking for Jesus, but there's something stirring. God has been working before you through his word and by the Holy Spirit, and he's planted seeds in their heart, and he's been drawing them to himself, and you don't know what's going on. You can't see it. They may be acting meaner on the outside because what God's doing on the inside. And so you have to recognize that he, they may be resisting, but just, just reach out and say, hey, listen, why don't you meet me at Denny's on Sunday, and I'll buy you breakfast, and then we can straggle into the 11 o'clock service. Church, I know some of y'all probably did that today. So, <laughs> so they're, what are they waiting for? They just want somebody to invite them. How many of you end up, you came to Life Community Church because a friend invited you to church? I mean, I'm not raising my hand. I mean, no. <laughs> and you, if you look around, you see it makes a big difference. People are often waiting for an invitation. God wants to use your relational connection to introduce people to Jesus. First in how you live and then what you say. You see, if you want to invite people to church, you need to live in such a way that when you invite them to church, they don't laugh. <laughs> that they're not surprised you go to church. Ha! You, really? What, really? What kind of church is it? Is it a drinking, cussing church? Man, I'm in for that. <laughs> and actually, it is. <laughs> you want to live your life in such a way that your life is a witness and it will help people come to Christ. You want to draw people to Christ. Amen? Now, Jesus' first miracle was at Cana of Galilee. Now, here's the thing. If God's going to use your relationships to bring people to Christ, well, the most important relationships and the most important relationships you have are your family. But sometimes your family will be the toughest people that you'll ever try to reach with the gospel. And Jesus even had trouble with his family. Now, if the Son of God who lived a perfect life had trouble reaching his family, you might have a little trouble too. Right? Because I don't know if you noticed this, but you ain't perfect. You're not living a sinless life. Jesus was, and yet his brothers still did not believe. Look at this. Now, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee. First miracle, Jesus turned the water into wine at Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, which is, I believe, where he lived, but we won't get, in, get into that. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So who all's with him? His family, his mothers and his brothers. Now, 
He, Jesus had four other brothers that were born after he was born. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And he also had sisters. They were born to Joseph and Mary after the birth of Jesus. Now, there, there are parts of the church that say that Mary remained a virgin. Didn't have any family. This is all family that Joseph had before Mary. That Mary remained a virgin the rest of her life. How... Cruel would that have been of God to say, listen, I'm going to call you to be husband and wife, and you're going to make this great sacrifice in the beginning of your marriage, but now, now I want you to live celibate as a couple for the rest. It's, it's against biblical truth. What does he say in the beginning? He says, you shall become one flesh. That's the call to marriage. That's where that's supposed to happen. Let me just throw that out there. Where's that supposed to happen? In marriage. It's, he says, don't defraud each other. Paul says, don't defraud each other uh, by not having sex, except for a time, a short time of agreement together in prayer. So I don't buy that. I'm just saying. So, so he has brothers. The brothers are now, you know, right now at the beginning of his ministry, he turns water into wine, they're with him. Uh, and after these things, Jesus was in Galilee. His ministry has continued for a while, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, was Jesus afraid to die? No. Jesus was not afraid to die, but he wanted to die at the right time. In other words, he wanted to, to, to die in God's time, not in some ill conceived time of the Pharisees trying to kill him. It was important that he die at just the right time. Jesus came at just the right time. Jesus came to die at just the right time. So now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea, go into Jerusalem so that your disciples may see your works, which you're doing for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you Notice this. If you do these things, like if you're the Messiah, prove it. For not even his brothers, verse 5, were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. Your time is always opportune. You can go up to Jerusalem anytime you want. They're not trying to kill you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has yet not come. So basically, they were, what they're saying, his brothers are saying to him, listen, if you're the Messiah, prove it. Go do some big miracles. Go to the temple. Do some big miracles. Prove that you're the Messiah. In other words, do what we think you should do. Not what God's telling you to do. So there's the struggle. There's the struggle. And so if you're the Messiah, prove it. And that's exactly, if you have unsaved family, in other words, if you grow up in a, around people that don't know Jesus, and you come to Jesus and say, you know, I've become a Christian, that unsaved family will say to you, prove it. I've heard a lot of talk. You say you are. You see to me, you're still acting like the little bratty kid you've always been. Prove it. You say you have to be different. You have to be a light. You have to show it. You have to prove it. 
His own family didn't believe him. They, even, they thought he was crazy. In other words, to say, our brother, Jesus, thinks he's the Messiah. It's like, that's our brother. Even Mary struggled with it. Mary, who had a visit from the angel, said she treasured these things up in her heart. So Mary's not like, she's like, is, yeah, I, I mean, this was, did this really all happen? It's like, you know, he had poopy diapers. Uh, it didn't seem very much like the Son of God sometimes. I wiped his butt. Didn't seem very godly then. Right? She struggled with it, with his, the humanity of it. So they think he's crazy. His own family thinks he's crazy. And guess what? It just shut down on me, sorry. I can't think if I can't see it. Where was I? Way down here. Thank, th- thankful for you. Way down here. They're going to say, prove it. They're going to think he was crazy. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. It was all well and good when he was turning water into wine. That's a pretty handy it's a pretty handy trait to having a brother, right? Somebody needs to go to 7-Eleven. Oh, I got it. I'll take care of it. <laughs> pretty handy brother to have around. But when he, when he healed a man on the Sabbath, he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were looking to see what he would do. They wanted to see if he would heal a man on the Sabbath. When he healed on the Sabbath, they condemned him for it. And if you'll look at the miracles of Jesus, a lot of his miracles he did on the Sabbath. Because it angered the religion. Because they had, God says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But they had taken the Sabbath and they'd made it such a long list of rules that had made it not a blessing. God wanted the Sabbath to be a blessing, a day of rest for man. But they had made the Sabbath not a blessing, but a burden, a weight that nobody could carry around. So Jesus was showing them, listen, God didn't make the Sabbath man for the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath for man. God made it as a blessing, not a curse. And you've taken this blessing and turned it into a curse. And so this man that had, had a withered hand, Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And when he did that, they started plotting against him to kill him. Now, now he's causing trouble. You know, it's great if you're going to be the Messiah and you're going to turn water into wine. That's all well and good. You're going to heal people. But listen, don't go against the religious conventions of our day. Don't get us thrown out of our own synagogue. Don't get us in trouble. Hey, listen, Jesus, if you want to do stuff, fine, but now you're bringing trouble on us. So stop it. Listen, if you're really the son of God, then prove it. Go out and do some big miracles and let's get all these questions over with. Because some, some people say, well, look, he's raising people from the dead. That must mean something. Lazarus was dead for three days. Now he's alive. The other people say, well, He's of the devil. Which one is he? He says, here, you can answer these questions right now. Go and do it. They did not believe him until he proved it. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. And this is Acts after the resurrection. 
the, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They were eating crow now. Right? He proved it. He proved it. And you have to prove it to your family. You have to live your life, your Christian life, in such a way that it is a witness. And here's the reality. Living your Christian life before your family because they live with you and you're not Jesus, you're going to mess up. Right? We mess up. We're not perfect. We're not Jesus. We're going to mess up. We're going to cuss. We're going to yell. We're going to scream. We're going to say inappropriate things. We're going to do inappropriate. We're going to do things. We're going to sin against our family. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to mess up. So how, what does that do to our witness? Well, it hurts our witness. So how do you restore your witness? You got to repent. You got to admit it. You got to say, hey, I was a jerk. I, I, I'm sorry. I shouldn't act that way. I know better than that. Since Christ came into my life, I know I'm not living perfect, and I, I want to be a better example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Would you forgive me? you got to do that, and you got to do it over and over and over again. You have to exemplify grace that you've received, and you have to be humble. You can never act like or be arrogant that your salvation is some, in some reason because you're better than somebody else. Thank you, Mike. You get that? You can never let people believe that your salvation in Christ makes you better than anybody else. I want to tell you something. You didn't do it. Dead men cannot save themselves. You were dead, and Jesus resurrected you to new life in Christ. He, he gave you the ability as a dead man to sit up and say, what's going on? And Jesus said, well, I'm here to give you life. And you get to say, okay. But you couldn't have done it until he gave, until he resurrected your dead spirit by his word and gave you the faith to say, yes, he does it all. So if you ever act like or think like you're righteous because of your own acts or deeds, you're not. You and I are only righteous because of the complete work of Christ on the cross. That's what we celebrate in. And the world, unsaved people react when they think we think we're better than them and we're not. As a matter of fact, I'm not better. I recognize that I'm worse and I need a savior. I need a savior. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And he proved it. And they believed it. So we got to prove it. We got to live in such a way. Second thing, another point, I don't know where I am. Second or third, seventh, twelfth. Okay. Jesus chose a diverse group. His group was different. He went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted. He came to them and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon always ends up being on the first of the list, to whom he gave the name Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. Then we gave the name Bernard, I don't know, which means sons of thunder. Let's just say that. He called them sons of thunder. Maybe that means boneheads. He, to them, he gave the name boneheads, uh, which means sons of thunder. 
and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed them. So Jesus, first of all, this is a crazy thing. Jesus put a thief, Judas, in charge of the money box. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume or purinard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? That's three years wages and given to poor people. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, John wrote this, so John knew he was a pilferer too. So all the disciples knew that Judas was stealing out of the money box, but they let him keep the money box. What's God doing? You know that Jesus will sometimes put you places where your weaknesses will be revealed where your struggles are unmasked so that you have a choice of whether I'm going to give this to Jesus and overcome it. I'm going to repent of it. or I'm just going to knuckle down and, and then I'm going to betray Christ. See, so it's, it's not meanness when God calls us to repentance. You know, we always think about those guys that are preaching, you need to repent because you're going to hell. Well, that's not mean. That's the truth. You heard about the guys that were two preachers that were standing by, by the road with, with signs that said, turn back, the end is near, and they're holding them up by the road, and people are driving by, you bunch of crackpots, leave us alone. And then they'd hear, rrr, rrr. and uh, they said, should, maybe we should just change the signs to road is out. It came way, that was old way back in my memory somewhere that came back. So, so, but it's, it's the grace of, it's the grace of God that leads us to repentance. If you're lost, it's good when someone tells you where you are. Yeah. You ever trust your map program and Siri is a liar. I don't know if you know this, Siri is against you. Don't trust her because she will dump you out in the desert. She will take you places you did not intend to go. See, it, and that's deceitful, isn't it? It's, it's harmful. You, in other words, you, it's the grace of God to tell us where we are. It was the grace of God. It was God reaching out to Judas to bring him in, to restore him. See, God loves broken people. And then said he would reach, that he would make Judas, this broken guy, one of his 12. Because God believes in giving people multiple chances. Not a second, he's not the God of the second chance. He's the God of the thousandth chance. And so he's reaching out. He's, he's, he's trying to bring him in. But, you know, integrity is important. Because little failures lead to big failures. Little lies become big lies. He's one of the 12. Think about this. He's one of the 12, and yet he's not what he claims to be. And you got to get this. Even in the church, there will be people who are not what they claim to be. I want to challenge you not to give up on the church. 
because there are people in the church who are not what they claim to be. We, can't, we don't give up on Jesus because one of the disciples that he chose was a thief and a betrayer. We, we can't give up on the church because there's someone who instead of dealing with their weaknesses doubles down and holds on to them. Because there's, there's, going to be, there's going to be people that mess up all around us. Right? So if the, if the relationship, if, if, the, if the ratio is one out of 12, wow. Watch out for the person sitting next to you. So we can't give up on the church just because there's some people who, who God may have put them there to help them deal with stuff that needed to be brought to the surface. Things that needed to be brought to light. You see, our tendency is to hide sin because we're ashamed of it. But God's tendency is he wants to bring it to light and heal it. God wants to, wants to deal with it. And you can't deal with it in the darkness. You have to deal with it in the light. So God strategically puts people in situations where it reveals our weaknesses. It reveals what we need to deal with so we can say, oh, God, I need help. And he says, exactly. I've been trying to tell you that. He also chose political opposites to be in the 12. He chose Simon the Zealot. Zealots, not Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Zealots were those who, who were trying to restore Israel to its former national glory. They wanted Rome to be cast out. They were willing to do terrorist acts, anything, military actions to cast Rome out of Israel. They were zealots. Matthew, he also called Matthew the tax collector. And tax collectors were those who worked for Rome to take taxes from their own people to make sure that Rome stayed in Israel. Two ends of the political spectrum, a zealot and a tax collector, and Jesus calls them to follow him. It's very important. The work of the kingdom of God has to come before our politics. Did you get that? The work of the kingdom of God has to come before our politics. We can't go around saying the other side doesn't love Jesus because they don't agree with us. Because I don't know if you know this, but I, let me just throw this out there and, you know, hold on to your shorts. But the political process is corrupt on both sides. The hope of our world is not politics. The hope of our world is Jesus. And so you want to be careful. And you have to be careful. Because never before have we had the avenue where we could espouse our opinion so widely as we have in social media, where you can express your opinion about a lot of different things. And here's what it's hard to get, wrap your mind around, is that it's just opinions and very little truth. And most people that are on Facebook, not you, of course, but most people <laughs> that are on Facebook don't have the ability to discern the difference between 
something that's presented in the media and something that is truth, something that is opinion and something that is truth. And it's a poor avenue to convey that. So I just say this. I've had this opinion for a long time. Don't be willing to throw your witness, your ability to talk to people about Jesus because you're more concerned about wanting to share your opinion about politics or any number of things. We have to be careful. We don't want to throw our, what's the most important thing? The most important thing is people spending eternity with their heavenly father. That's the most important thing. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, to share the good news, and we don't want to throw it away because we were more concerned about sharing our opinion. I want to tell you, I've got opinions about everything. Second thing about opinions, I think I'm right. <laughs> Don't you? <laughs> we all think we're right. If we didn't think we were right, we would change our opinion. So we battle over things that we shouldn't battle over, so we have to be careful. As the people of God, I'm just saying, because we're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have opinions, but we have to put them under submission to the more important job of telling other people about Jesus. So I don't want to throw away my opportunity to tell somebody Jesus loves them because I had to tell them that how great somebody is. Because Jesus is greater. So, and I've got opinions about that too, but I'm not going to go into it. Another one of the things that's made the New Testament church different, Jesus had women involved in his ministry. Women are important to the ministry. The New Testament church changed before the New Testament, before Jesus came, women were nothing more than property. In very rare instances were women treated than more than property. But in Christ, there was a shift. There was a change. Here's what Paul says. The New Testament church broke down the stereotypes that limited the role of women in society in general and in the church in particular. Now, later on in, in the church... The organized church tried to lock women down again. But here's, here's the biblical pattern. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Nor is a, there's no race. There's neither slave nor free. There's no economic difference. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ not only does need to be genetically diverse in that men and women, I didn't mean, you know, multiple, but it should reflect the world around us. The church should reflect the world around us. It should be racially diverse. It should be economically diverse. It, it should be politically diverse. We, we need to demonstrate to the world what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. When the world can't love each other and get along, we need to be able to love each other and get along. That's the challenge. That's what God calls us to. 
The call of the disciple, I love this, in John chapter 15, Jesus says about the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that you would, whatever you ask in the, the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. And that's an important thing. We recognize that God chooses us. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And that's important. To think in the cosmic call of the universe that God chose you before the foundation of the world. Did you, did you ever hate those times? Maybe, you, maybe I'm thinking back too long ago, but bear with me. Uh, I may be too old for you. Okay. That on the playground, we're going to pick, si- pick sides and have a team. You remember that? They still do that? No, they don't do that? Because it's too harmful. I don't know if I'll ever recover. <laughs> but, you know, so you're going to, you know, whether it's elementary school or you're a couple of friends, you're picking up sides, picking sides to play a game of baseball or something. And, and so you pick two captains, and the two captains are always the best players. They're, they're the ones that excel. And, you know, I... I was a pretty good baseball player, but I was just pretty good. I was just okay. You know, I, I could hit the ball most of the time. I could catch the ball. I could run slowly. <laughs> you know, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't a gifted athlete. I was, but I loved playing baseball. I, I loved the game. I was okay. Basketball, I could dribble and I could make about one out of 10 shots. I could never play basketball, but, but you get to that spot, that dreaded spot, and you got a jock, and he's picking teams, and what, what you don't want is to be the last one picked, which is like saying, loser. <laughs> Here's exciting news. The God of the universe The King of kings and the Lord of lords looked down through time. And before he spoke the world into existence, he said, Mike Brewer, I want you on my team. He called us. Greg Dietz, I want you on my team. He looked down through eternity and he called us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He, you say, well, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, you're dead. Your spirit is dead and you don't know anything about Jesus. And you hear the word of God from a, maybe a hundred different ways. Somebody says to you, Jesus came to save sinners. Maybe you hear it on the radio, and he takes that word, the word of God, and he plants it in your heart, and he begins to create a desire in you that you don't have on your own. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one that seeks after God. We would not on our own ever desire to be saved. So God gives us the faith. He resurrects our spirit by his word. And when we hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for your sins, you need to receive him as your savior. We say, 
yes, I want that. I, I can remember the night in that little church, Hillview Terrace, Assemblies of God, little church on John West. Revival, I think it was a Sunday night, but I don't remember. I couldn't wait for the preacher to shut up because God had already called my name. I was thinking, I got, I got to get, because that's what you had to do. You had to go to the front. You had to go to the front and give your life to Jesus Christ. And that's what I knew I had to do. I was willing to do it. I wanted to do it because I was tired of running. And he had, he had quickened my heart and put a hunger in my heart to say yes to him. And you know what? Some of you are here today. You're here today, in this room today, because Jesus has been calling your name. He's been calling you. He's been saying to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the call, the greatest invitation that's ever been given. God says, I want you in my family. I choose you. That's what a gift. That through eternity, he would reach down and call us and says, I want you to be mine. If you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, you're here today. One of the reasons why you're here today is because he's been calling you. He's awakened you. So when somebody said, why don't you go to church, you said, okay. <laughs> because he's calling your name to be his. And he's given you the faith to reach out. All you got to do, this is your part. Receive the gift. He's even given you this. He's given you the ability to do it. So, because he never wants you to say, well, I saved myself. Yep. Went down to that church, that life community church. Preacher gave me an invitation. I did it. Gave my life to Jesus. Yeah. It's him. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. So, Master, just close your eyes real quick. Don't look around. I'm not even going to look around. This is not for my benefit. This is between you and God. But you'd say today, I've been hearing that voice. I've been hearing God call me. He's calling my name. He's invited me to come into his family. I know that I need to say yes to Jesus Christ. It's, it's my time. I, it's my time to become a part of the family of God, a child of God. I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord today. I want you to slip up your hand. I'm not going to look. Nobody else is going to look between you and God. Jesus, I, Jesus, I ask you into my heart today. Would you stand? Let's stand together. Amen.